Welcome to part 4, concluding the story of Aerosmith's grind. Reading born on the outskirts of Boston, Brad Whitford started out his musical life on the piano and trumpet, neither of which lasted long. When his father bought a cheap acoustic guitar, Brad co-opted it, quickly finding it more appealing for exploration. By his early teens, Brad was informally attached to his guitar, preferring to learn material himself after taking some basic lessons locally. Sharing a room with his older brother, he was introduced to the songs of the day, and those songs were naturally the ones he'd learned to play along to. His brother would also take him to concerts, and it was after seeing a Dave Clark Five show at Boston Garden on June 26, 1965, that Brad decided to form his own band, which was named Symbols of Resistance. They soon started to play the local hotspots, school cafeterias, and clubs. During high school, other bands followed, Spring Rain and Teapot Dome, and he'd later enjoy a tenure with the Morlocks, a local band popular on the North Shore and wider New England. By the time he graduated from in 1970, he was playing with Earth Incorporated. Musically, it had been Led Zeppelin's appearance at Framingham's Carousel Theatre on August 21, 1969, that completely changed Brad's musical outlook towards the guitar. That was the moment that provided a musical epiphany and he recalled in Circus Raves in 1975. As far as a guitar player who projects himself on stage, Page is amazing. When I saw him for the first time, it was on Led Zeppelin's second tour of the States, and the band was just starting to make waves. He hit me as one of the most incredible showmen I had ever seen. It was just something about the combination of his body movements that struck me as being almost unbelievable. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He was mesmerized and purchased a Gibson Les Paul the following day. The other band that inspired him was Humble Pie, with its two-guitar format backing an incredible singer, Steve Marriott. After high school, Brad studied at Berklee College of Music for a year while playing in another band, Stray Cat. He'd drop out of Berklee, finding what he perceived as a snobbish attitude of the jazz crowd contrary to his rock outlook, similar to how the narrow and tractable teaching had pushed Joey away from percussive studies. And anyway, he really wanted to focus on playing music full-time. Brad recalled in 1975, I felt that there was something telling me, hey man, you should be playing, not studying. So, I left Berkeley after a year, because I thought I would learn a lot more out in front of people, playing my acts every night. He joined Just In Time, which included Dwight Twitty Farron on lead, a band that Farron had put together following the demise of William Proud. During the summer of 1971, they had a gig scheduled at Lake Sunapee during the summer. Members of Aerosmith turned up to check out Farron's new band, and Brad's guitar playing wowed them. He impressed them more the following night at the barn when Joe Jammer jammed with Aerosmith and Perry left his guitar on stage. Brad picked it up and proceeded to rip it up with Jammer. A week after the hijinks at the barn, Joe Perry called Brad to get a feel for his interest in joining the fledgling Aerosmith. He invited Brad to see the band play at the Lakeview Park Ballroom in Menden. Brad recalled in Walk This Way, they were playing Stones, Zeppelin, Lennon, all these cool covers, exactly the songs you wanted to hear, but couldn't, because all the bands that played them were too big to come to your town. They had some original songs too, that had a lot of promise. That's how I found the humble pie-type band I was looking for. When Brad moved into 1325 Commonwealth, living arrangements there were still cramped, but the situation improved with Stephen and Joey having moved to another nearby apartment. Brad soon started rehearsing with the band, though Raymond was initially still part of the scene. 
He made his debut during a Labor Day residency at the Savage Beast. He recalled in Glide magazine in 2014. My first gig was at a little club in Vermont. The name of the club was the Savage Beast, laughs, and we were playing a rock and roll club show, so it wasn't like a real high-pressure thing, and we'd been rehearsing like crazy. It felt good, and it worked out really well. I think we knew we were on the right road. Brad's addition had little other impact on the music during the autumn of 1971, and they continued in much the same way as they had been prior to Raymond's ejection. Aerosmith continued playing the same sorts of venues across New England, adding some of the venues Brad had previously played with his bands. They received a break when a club owner saw them open for the James Montgomery Band and offered them a residency at his club, which would expand their range and exposure. That club was the Shabu in Willimantic, Connecticut. By that time, they had also upgraded Mark Lehman's travel-worn van to a larger ward school bus. Perry recalled in Walk This Way, We spent many ice-cold nights huddled in the back of the bus on the way to and from isolated gigs in rural New England, trying to keep warm around the gas stove like the crew of some B-17 bomber lost over Germany. Raymond described Mark's van as a 1964 International Harvester bread truck. It was the hotel on wheels. That's what we called it. Everything happened in the van. The bus, though, provided the next step up for transporting the band and their gear. The band's first major break came when they auditioned for George Page, Edgar Winter's road manager at the time. He lived in an apartment with his girlfriend and her friend, who was dating Tom. More importantly, he had a contact at a record label. After hearing them play he became a believer in their potential and agreed to help them, even though he harbored suspicions that the band's internal tensions might quickly result in the band's dissolution. Aerosmith recorded a demo of One Way Street which was duly submitted for consideration to the label, not that they had much confidence with their performance of a song that was still relatively new at the time. George Dooley took the tape to Stephen Paley, Epic's A&R contact in New York City, and was flatly rejected. Stephen recalled, at the time, Aerosmith did not have the song Dream On, which came out, later. Nor did I hear anything else that sounded like something that would get played on the radio. At Epic, back then, in order to break a band, a hit single was very important. My other problem was that I felt Stephen Tyler's style of singing was so derivative of Mick Jagger. For me, that was the biggest problem as I was looking for originality or a hit song. Had I heard Dream On at the time, I probably would have recommended that we sign them. Ironically, the messenger, George, had already heard Aerosmith play Dream On. He was warned to drop his association with the band or risk his reputation. While the first attempt at enticing record label interest was a failure, the rejection would have provided motivation to keep crafting their material and performance, increasing their professionalism and appeal for future demos or showcases. A second break around this time included Aerosmith's debut in New York City, though it's debatable whether it was much of a glorious homecoming for Stephen. The band managed to land the opening slot at the Academy of Music on a bill headlined by Humble Pie, which would have pleased Brad and Edgar Winter's white trash band. A major venue, the show was not in a school cafeteria or local club, so it was essentially the band's professional industry debut and if it went well, it might provide another step up the ladder and help the band gain further attention within the industry. There may have been a bit of luck in getting the opening slot. British band Bell Plus Arc were listed on some early ads in the opener slot, 
and then Black Oak, Arkansas, so not unexpectedly, there may have been some uncertainty in securing a third act for the show. Whatever the case, the ragamuffins from Boston were going to take their luck and ride it as far as possible. Promoter Steve Paul insisted that they only perform three songs in the third act opening slot. That wasn't a particularly unusual request for an unknown opener, and the crowd were bored and waiting for the bands they were paying to see to come on stage. But Stephen wasn't having any of that. Brazenly, or perhaps prophetically, the band opened their set with Make It. If ever there was a song defining a band's mission, then this served emphatically as Aerosmith's declaration of intention. One Way Street and Major Barber followed, perhaps representing the most developed original material from the band's catalogue to date, while also showcasing them as broadly as possible. But after the requested three songs, the band weren't done, and throwing caution to the wind, ripped into train kept a rollin' before concluding with Walkin' the Dog. Stephen recalled in the Boston Phoenix in 1976. We had done a number with Joe playing lap steel guitar and me singing while sitting in a chair. It was a slow blues number and people applauded like they really dug us. Paul came up after the show and said, how dare you sit down when the audience doesn't know who you are. Another problem that came up that night at the Academy of Music was that Johnny and Edgar wouldn't let us use their bass amp after Steve Paul promised we could. Steve was thinking of managing us at the time. The show at least provided a motivational taste of the big time, but the band limped back to Boston and returned to the school cafeterias where they'd been performing. It was a rude awakening to the vagaries of broken equipment, but also an indication that they needed proper guidance and organization to progress up the ladder. Sometimes, the gods are fickle, what is given with one hand is taken away with the other. A series of misfortunes followed the band throughout the winter of 1971 into early 1972, some of which were unnecessarily self-inflicted. A steady stream of bookings at the officers' club at the Charlestown Navy Yard were cancelled after an incident of petty theft. Not only did the band lose a decent payday, but the side benefit of a hearty roast dinner usually provided that would have made a nice break from the monotony of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or brown rice that formed the staple of their diets. Then came the departure of their original roadie, Mark Lehman, which should hardly have been surprising with the later admissions of how poorly they had treated him. Once his van had been superseded by the group's purchase of the school bus, his days may well have been numbered anyway. Regardless, his importance to the band from their very conception can't be minimized. He made their first 14 months of existence much easier than it might otherwise have been, performing much of the thankless heavy lifting and lugging equipment and bodies that made their gigs possible. When he left, they still had the bus, but not the road manager slash roadie with the experience required, even at a basic level. Gary Kabatsi filled in for the interim to lug the band out to a gig at Marlborough High School, halfway between Boston and Worcester. But the group also lost their rehearsal space at Boston University. And, to add to their woe, the band members still living at 1325 Commonwealth received their first eviction notice. It was a bleak period where the challenges facing the young band were mounting. Searching for a new place to rehearse, the band were advised to check out the Fenway Music Theater by a connection to the facility's assistant manager. There, at a time that morale was at its lowest, the group were introduced to John O'Toole. After first trying to get them to pay for the privilege of rehearsing there, he decided to allow them a few days free, in case he liked them. The Fenway had been closed for much of 1971, but had reopened for a single show during the summer, 
with Frank Zappa The Mothers performing two sold-out shows on June 30th. It then reopened on a more regular basis on December 17th. In between bookings, the owners planned to showcase and audition unknown acts on Sundays. A February 1972 date had originally been booked for a T-Rex show, with that band having embarked on their first major U.S. concert tour. However, ticket sales were so poor that the show was cancelled, and the theater's manager asked Aerosmith, who'd been rehearsing there, to perform the date for what audience turned up. Tom recalled in Shark Magazine, we'd gone for a while without playing a gig and we were on the brink of being evicted, and we were in a local music store asking around about a place to rehearse and this guy said, go ask my brother, he, works, with this manager of the Fenway Theater, John O'Toole. Then, one day, some semi-famous band was supposed to play there, but they cancelled out. We happened to be up in the balcony waiting for them to go on, and all of a sudden, the manager came up and said, hey, you guys, I need you to play. So, we lugged all our gear up onto the stage and played, and the audience loved it. After the positive audience response, an impromptu audition followed. Tom continued. The next day John said, there's a manager here, to see you. We couldn't see him, the lone figure in this big theater, but we said to ourselves, okay, start playing, he's out there. So, we played for about half an hour, the lights went off, the curtain closed, and he was gone, but he left behind a management contract. It was pretty exciting, that was really a scene out of some movie. So, he started to manage us. That, he was one Francis, Frank Connolly. As the song No Surprise later recalled, what have you got to lose? Frank was a former U.S. Marine Corps officer and Providence College graduate who had taken over managing the Carousel Theater in Framingham in 1964, as co-owner with Gerald Roberts. His first season opened with Janie Mansfield starring in a production of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He soon made a success of the venue, grossing $100,000 on a week engagement featuring Tom Jones and branched out into promoting concerts for other acts across the region. He also promoted the Beatles at Suffolk Downs on August 18, 1966, as they played a short 11-song set for a crowd of 25,000. Another notable act he successfully promoted was the Rolling Stones for the doubleheader at Boston Garden on November 29, 1969, a week prior to their Altamont disaster. He also brought Jesus Christ Superstar to Boston in early 1972. With dropping attendances at the carousel, the property was sold for development in 1970. The following year, Frank took over managing the Scarborough Fair Club in Revere, while looking for new opportunities. Soon, promoter Don Law and the Boston Tea Party filled the void he had willingly left. As Joe recalled in Walk This Way, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. We took the contracts back to our apartment, and we sat down at the kitchen table with the contracts in one hand and the eviction notice in the other. We just looked at each other and shook our heads in disbelief. That's how close it was. Frank had booked the World Festival of Magic and Occult at Fenway, March 7 through 19, after witnessing the large crowds at the New York run. Unfortunately, it didn't translate into sales in Boston and was cancelled at the last moment. The band doesn't appear to have been active much during March 1972, and if Joe's recollections are correct, then their first activities for Frank included providing manual labor for his production of Paul Shire's An Unpleasant Evening with H.L. Mencken, starring David Wayne. Scheduled to run at the Fenway, April 11th through 23, that production was also cancelled, so Aerosmith continued their rehearsals at the defunct Charles Playhouse. 
Frank then installed them at engagements at various hotels to tighten up their performance through a grueling series of nightly sets. As he told Stephen at the time, the multiple sets nightly weren't for his benefit, but for the benefit of the rest of band. They simply lacked the performance experience that Stephen had already earned. It also reinforced that the club grind was not something they wanted to be doing. The band focused on their job, making music and writing and refining the arrangements of their original songs. Following this period of woodshedding, the band returned to New York City to perform a showcase at Max's Kansas City. There was no interest, though Aerosmith also opted not to enter the same glitter scene that New York Dolls were part of, performing at venues such as the Mercer Arts Center, Kenny's Castaways, and the Popcorn Pub which later became the Coventry. In fact, some of those places wouldn't have been booked anyway. Popcorn Pub Coventry owner Paul Subb recalled in Goldmine magazine, it was a big club, around 5,000 square feet, and it held around 700 people. Everyone from Kiss, the New York Dolls, the Ramones, Blondie, Sam and Dave, the Dictators, and Elephant's Memory played there. I'd put on 10 acts a week, both local and national. The only act we turned down, because we didn't want to spend $300, was Aerosmith. The New York Dolls were really the ones that kept Coventry going. They played once a month, and whenever they played, 700 people would show up. In mid-1972, Aerosmith still weren't much welcome outside of New England, and, shockingly, they only played their first billed non bu show in Boston on May 20th. Filling in at the Fenway on February 26th doesn't quite count. Connolly, who drove the band to gigs in his car once their bus finally died, also obtained rehearsal space for the band at Boston Garden. They were using that space when the Rolling Stones returned for a pair of shows, July 18th and 19th, 1972. He also had the band rehearse at Caesars Monticello in Framingham. Managing a band in Boston was one thing, getting them a national record deal was an entirely different proposition, and Frank knew his limitations. Part of his experience was knowing the right people, and he was already close with Steve Labor. Steve had been the head of the William Morris Agency Music Division, but had broken off to partner with David Krebs. They formed three companies, Labor Krebs for Management, Contemporary Communications Corporation for Record Production, and Daxel Seldak for Music Publishing, in early 1972. They were described in a January 1972 piece as a firm which will do packaging, promotion and marketing of talent and units. They immediately signed John Lennon's and Yoko Ono's backing group, Elephant's Memory. Frank had already promoted some of the agency's acts and productions in Boston, notable The Stones and Jesus Christ Superstar, so it was only natural that he approached them at their new firm with the band's demo. Labor Krebs were interested in Aerosmith and made them their second signing, according to Record World, in 1975. In June, they had added the New York Dolls to their roster, and in early August, they also signed Bulldog, a rock group that also included Gene Cornish and drummer Dino Donnelly, both formerly of the Rascals. Steve focused on the Dolls with Marty Thou, while David guided Aerosmith. The production and management deal with professional representation was a critical step in getting their proverbial foot in the door with record labels. It bolstered the visage of legitimacy and illustrated that the band had the requisite backing to pursue success. Perhaps more important was that Frank already had a well-established relationship with Steve, meaning that trust, respect, and enthusiasm were present immediately and didn't need to be freshly established over time. 
After further woodshedding by the band, Labor Krebs set up a showcase for Columbia's Clive Davis and Atlantic's Ahmed Erdogan at Max's. Joe recalled to the Boston Phoenix, we had gone down to Max's Kansas City in New York because Frank Connolly, our manager then, connected with some people who were going to get Clive Davis to see us. This was in early 72. Other record companies had already passed on us, and there were about 25 people at Max's that night. It was what you'd call a paper house, mostly record company executives. A lot of companies who had seen us before had sent other representatives this time. We played a really short set of all the tunes that came out on the first album. Stephen added, and we played an instrumental called, We Don't Wanna Fuck You, Lady, We Just Wanna Eat Your Sandwiches. Some of that purported song was later recycled into Sweet Emotion. Ahmet wasn't overly impressed with Stephen's very obvious parallels with Mick Jagger and regardless, Atlantic were already the distributors for Rolling Stones records via Avco and had a solid rock band roster. Most importantly, he felt that Aerosmith weren't quite ready for a record deal and needed another year of development. That was a blow to the band in one sense, Atlantic was the rock label powerhouse of the time, while Columbia was better known for softer acts such as Barbara Streisand, Simon and Garfunkel, and Chicago. Ultimately it didn't matter. Clive was more than impressed with them, as later immortalized in No Surprise, I'm Gonna Make You a Star, slash Just the Way You Are. Clive's signing ethos was straightforward. He knew that once an act was signed, it was expensive to put together all the support that the label would be expected to facilitate, primarily publicity, promotion, advertising, and merchandising. While it was always a gamble, it was one he never took lightly, but the talent had to have prospects of becoming breakable. A band such as Aerosmith, with the backing of respected figures such as Steve Labor, David Krebs, and Frank Connolly already had a critical advantage that assuaged any immediate concerns over undue risk, a recognized professional support team. That said, Clive felt that patience was still an important part of the process, explaining part of his ethos in Billboard in 1972, we should take the point of view we are prepared to stay with an artist until he or she breaks. It was an ethos that Labor Krebs echoed, and none of their acts prior to 1980 were pre-established successes. Time and investment were critical in the process of developing the commercial viability of an act. There were naturally various other unexpected factors that could, and would, come into play. At Columbia, Clive had signed acts through a variety of methods. Dr. Hook came to his attention, though a film score they were engaged to work on for CBS. Don Ellis at ANR had brought him a tape of Kenny Loggins, who he immediately signed, but former Poco guitarist, Jim Messina, wanted to produce him, resulting in an unexpected partnership. Stephen Paley, who had rejected Aerosmith at Epic the previous year, loved Looking Glass, and had been hooked from the first time he heard Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, at the Café O Go Go. Clive concurred when he and Don Ellis saw the band. Other acts, such as Santana, came via promoters, or direct, though Columbia's ANR heads such as Jack Gold, Kip Cohen, and Paul Barata. Clive's overriding criteria was to find an act with not only musical talent, but with unique musical talent in order to come up with someone of long-lasting interest. With Aerosmith, Columbia had a hard rock act that would present new challenges. And with Columbia, Aerosmith had a label which would hopefully patiently nurture them. The deal Labor Krebs negotiated with Columbia was also groundbreaking at the time. The artist, in this case the partnership of Aerosmith with their management as 50-50 partners, would regain control of their masters after a period of 20 years. 
It was an arrangement, if not unheard of, then highly uncommon at a time when labels generally owned their artists and controlled much of their creative output even after their contractual period concluded. That the band's management had signed with the label on July 15, 1972, rather than the artists themselves directly, was also not particularly unusual at the time, even if it later became a problematic arrangement for both parties. It provided a critical buffer between artist and label, with the production company responsible for fulfilling delivery of product. Only decades later would the true value of the contract Labor Krebs negotiated become apparent. It would pay dividends for the band and their now former managers, providing revenue streams and control over their music that would otherwise have long been consumed by or sold on to other parties. But as the summer of 1972 ended, Aerosmith had a record deal, before media darlings and more visible New York dolls. Management had secured a $40,000 advance from Columbia, but Aerosmith then had the serious work of getting ready for their first proper studio sessions. Thank you for enjoying Chapter 1 of Aerosmith on Tour, Exploring the Band's Grind.